Hello and welcome. You're listening to the limited series podcast from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, The Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, the Chief Communications Officer here at TPPF. Over several episodes, we'll be discussing the challenges Americans face from the coronavirus epidemic, its effect on our healthcare, on our economy, and just really on our daily lives. But most importantly, we'll discuss the path forward to mitigate the damages and, and solutions that we can come up with to get the country back on track. TPPF has published the Recovery Agenda, a set of proposals that federal, state, and local governments should follow in order to protect the public health and safety, our economy, our families, and our students. You can find that proposal at texaspolicy.com. And that brings me to my guest. Emily Sass is the Policy Director for the Texas Public Policy Foundation's Center for Innovation in Education. She closely monitors issues like K-12 education, higher ed, workforce development, and helping to create broad opportunities for the next generation of Texans. And she's a former teacher. You can find her on Twitter at Emily J. Sass. Thank you, Emily, for being with me. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the the, the trite statement is that the children are our future, uh, and that's <laughs> true. Uh, and at least when it comes to improving schools and creating educational opportunities, Technically, the future then is in your hands. How do you feel about having that awesome responsibility at TPPF? It's a big responsibility, but I, I guess I asked for it when I signed up to be a teacher. So I'm thrilled, thrilled to have the honor of working in this space. Having been a teacher uh, and seeing um, you know that that experience up close, and now being on you know, and, and not just that, but but having to essentially deal with or or enact uh, you know the policies that come down from the legislature or from local governments, having had that experience, um, how does that instruct or how does that um, uh, experience uh, help you with what you do now, which is actually beyond the policy side of things when you're advising you know, members of the state legislature or local governments about the right policies for kids? You know, Ryan, um, it, it does definitely inform it because I've been in a teacher's shoes and had to you know, focus on helping students learn, grow, and adapt. And honestly, that doesn't always jive with mountains and mountains of paperwork. I was, I was pretty fortunate um, in my teaching career to work at um, a private institution that tried to lessen some of the red tape that you would find in other situations, but there's still, still plenty of that going on. Uh, and I just watch uh, teachers around me be so frustrated um, by, by the stuff that kept them from actually focusing on kids. So I've always got that in the back of my mind, um, and it also really, really informs my passion for teacher compensation. Um, the way we, we pay teachers is just, it, it provides no uh, incentive for, for teachers to uh, excel uh, because you, you know what you're getting paid for basically every year of your career as long as you stay in a certain district. So I'm really excited uh, just last year to see some of the things that changed there. Getting a little bit off topic, I know, but that's uh, uh, one thing that really uh, ignited a passion in me when I was teaching. Well, that's great because now that we're in a, um, you know, I, I don't want to say a time of crisis, but I mean, as we're dealing with these like serious challenges, um, it's important, you know, to have that passion, um, particularly now because we're we're trying to come up with solutions and things to really to to get our our education system and our economy and other things back on track. So that's always good. The school closures, in particular, are yeah. probably one of the most prominent faces of this crisis. I think that was a moment when people really started not just to take it seriously, but it became real. 
yeah. uh, for people. So just generally give us a sense of what you're hearing from, you know, advocacy groups or public officials or, you know, teachers themselves, maybe parents uh, and Texans uh, in general about how they're dealing with with having their kids at home. Uh, but then also uh, from the teacher's side, you know, not being able to go do your job and your passion. Yeah. Well, uh, according to Twitter, uh, this is a pivotal moment in history for many families as they uh, were kind of all homeschoolers by default, you could say. Um, and, and school districts are all trying to provide support, um, or, or quite a few of them anyway, are trying to provide support for families and kids during this time. But this is a, a massive shift that's come so quickly for parents, teachers, school districts, and the kids themselves. Um, so obviously there's, there's just the personal uh, response where parents suddenly have to deal with uh, schedules and children in the house as they're all trying to, to work from home as well in many cases. Um, I will say on the policy side, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with uh, the state's response on this front so far. Um, the Texas Education Agency made it clear very quickly to school districts as districts were beginning to consider closures um, that as long as districts were supporting students uh, remotely, that they would that the districts would kind of be given the benefit of the doubt on the financial side, that they'd be made whole there, the payment would come through, it'd be fine, um, that the districts should prioritize what's doing what's right for public health. Um, while trying to support students in whatever environment uh, needs to be created through because of the coronavirus situation. Um, that's different, actually, from what's happening in some other states and cities. Uh, some have just said, you know what, we're just closing school entirely. Forget the rest of the semester. We're just done. Um, or we're closing school at least for the next few weeks, and we're not going to make any attempt to keep up learning during that time because we don't think we can get it done or we don't think we can do it equitably. Uh, whereas uh, TEA and Texas school districts have kind of met that challenge head on and said, you know what, we're, we're going to do our darndest and uh, get whatever we can done for kids. So on the policy side, it's the right approach, still massive upheaval for families in real life. Absolutely. And, and you know, you, you said it eloquently. We're all homeschoolers now. Um, and one of the ways, um, if you're not, you know, I know a lot of friends and, and, and folks at TPPF and other friends I have around that are trying to continue to have some kind of schedule with their kids, you know, reading in the morning, math, math in the afternoon and so on. Um, but but some of them have turned to virtual education. And this is, you know, we have at TPPF have been talking about this uh, for quite some time in the in the area of uh, you know educational alternatives mm -hmm. or educational opportunities. I mean, everybody knows what school choice is, but not too many people know that you know virtual education is another kind of alternative education. But now it really comes home, um, as you're mentioning. You know, some districts were continuing to try and have you know lessons or have teachers you know continue to teach through the virtual sphere. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that is? And then given the, you know, given the current situation, is this, as they say, an idea whose time has come? <laughs> well, it certainly is is here now. Um, yes, it's time has come um, because of the emergency that we're, we're facing right now. So virtual education is just um, a, a lot like working remotely. It's It's school from a location that's not necessarily a school building, uh, per se. Uh, this this can take several different levels of implementation. Sometimes kids are are just using video or conferencing in a, a special speaker within a classroom. 
Uh, sometimes this is what we call blended learning, where a teacher on site is combining instruction or, or worksheets that are happening in a virtual environment. And sometimes it's full-time virtual, uh, which is kind of what we're dealing with in many cases right now, um, where the teacher and the student are interacting through a digital landscape. Um, this has been happening for quite a while in other states and even in Texas. Uh, what's, what's interesting, though, in Texas is there are only six school districts or charters that are allowed to provide a full-time virtual option for students. Only six out of about 1,200 school districts in the entire state of Texas. Um, so for, for kids who are in that kind of setting right now, I mean, this is business as usual. Uh, the question is, why have we been limiting districts' ability to set up a system like that? I mean, not let's be honest, a lot of kids are going to want a place to go in normal times, but we've been, we've been restricting districts' ability to even develop this kind of option as a backup or an alternative for students for years now. You know, and I'll, I'll just ask the obvious question because I have plenty of friends of mine that are, can't wait to have their kids go <laughs> back to school. Right. Um, Right. But but for a lot of people, you know, whether in rural districts or because, um, you know, you'd prefer to have your kids at home or, you know, any various number of reasons that you might be supportive of, of uh, virtual uh, learning. Uh, what, what is the market, you know, for lack of a better term? What is yeah. the market for, for virtual learning and and, you know, and, and parents wanting to make this kind of choice with their kids? Yeah. In, in normal times, um, it's, it's smaller than it is now. Um, but it definitely does exist. Um, homeschooling is a growing sector of, of American education and Texas education specifically. So people, people leave their school districts um, every year because they've chosen to homeschool for some reason. Uh, virtual education is, is related to that. It's not necessarily the same, but it's one avenue through which people can do school at home. Uh, and, and if more districts had the ability to offer that, it would actually be a chance for school districts to retain those students um, in their district's enrollment uh, while providing that home environment that some parents are looking for. Um, families can do this because, uh, well, military families sometimes choose this option because they're moving constantly. Um, and having a virtual setting ensures that even if they move or they're living in a different district from one year to the next, their kids are going to have a stable educational environment. You're probably going to be able to keep the same teacher set. People are going to know you. It's okay if you have to move in the middle of the school year uh, because, because your education system is more constant um, and can move with you. Uh, some families choose this option because their child has a special educational need, uh, maybe is, is, uh, has autism, needs a calmer, quieter, more solitary space to do their schoolwork. Uh, some families, uh, their children are particularly talented in some way. Think like somebody training for the Olympics or uh, trying to pursue a musical career, where they just need the the time and flexibility of a virtual environment. Um, and then some families um, are, are struggling at school. There's a social component going on, social and emotional. Uh, maybe they're getting bullied, uh, and they just need a little bit more space. Um, so, yeah. And that makes that makes. I mean, I never thought about all of those different options, uh, or at least all of those situations um, where a virtual learning environment might be much more helpful. Um, and you, you know, you can't de you can't talk about uh, the best way 
to to have kids get an education without also talking about um, how we're going to pay for it. Those those two things are <laughs> yeah. um, always always together. And you even mentioned at the top about districts, you know, being made whole with the funding. So it's you know those two issues uh, go hand in hand always. Um, so so how we pay for those kinds of, for pay for education is always a big debate. Um, and with and it's mostly it's almost all through property taxes, right? And so you've got this this problem where property taxes continue to rise and continue to frustrate people. But at the same time, the property tax goes to pay for education. So you've got this this tension there uh, that people have with wanting to be able to fund education, but also wanting to cut their uh, property taxes. There has been some momentum, uh, maybe a lot of it driven by TPPF, uh, to get behind this idea of decoupling property tax with funding schools. Um, you know, there are obviously some concerns that parents have and, and you know, that, that public officials have about that. Could you talk a little bit about how that might work and maybe address some of those concerns that, that you know, in, in might affect school budgets? Yeah. Um, you know, it would be nice to be able to stay in your home and send your kid to school. Um, and not have to worry about the property tax impact year over year of, of, of whether or not you're going to be able to stick around, uh, especially in, in times like we're facing now where there, there may be some economic difficulty um, in the coming years. Um, so education is funded in Texas through sort of two primary sources. There's a federal component that we're not going to get into. A local property taxes, that's, that's what happens on a local level. That's a little under 50%, let's say. Um, of of the pot, and then the state also contributes state funding toward it. So the local property taxes are really what what are hurting what people feel right now. Um, what our, our proposal has included is lowering, reducing the reliance on that local property tax level, and uh, relying more on state income streams. Uh, we've been lucky to be uh, have a growing economy. Um, and we'd like to see, as if it, assuming that continues or picks back up, we'd like to see the state put additional um, resources that it's got freed up toward education so that we can bring down the property tax uh, levels while keeping public funding for education the same. I guess uh, the, the, what's important to highlight here is it doesn't have to mean cuts for public education. You can keep these revenue neutral. It just means you're going to have to lower property taxes while relying on state sources. And that way, it seems like you can, if you want to make education uh, spending more effective or more efficient, or you want to audit how it's being spent, um, you're decoupling it from property tax. So you don't have that issue. You can just completely focus on, on you know, mm-hmm. where the money's going and making sure that it's working without having to worry about other policy Correct. efforts on the property tax side that may ultimately affect. Is that, is that kind of, you know, hopefully yeah, the short answer- some concerns? <laughs> yeah. The short answer is, is you just switch reliance on certain revenue streams. Yeah, yeah. You just use a different method to, to pay for it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, now, um, in a couple minutes we have left, you know, a lot of people are are concerned about uh, of efficiency audits. We you know last last session, uh, the legislature did pass you know historic legislation to ensure that we were actually auditing how the money is being spent to make sure it's being spent the right way. Um, you know, once we get on back on the path to normal, so to speak, um, can you talk about what the legislature passed last year and how important that might be to keep in place? 
Yeah. Uh, so what the legislature passed last session, in addition with uh, significant new spending on public education in general from the state, um, was simple, was a requirement that if school districts are going to raise local property tax rates further, we were just talking about that, um, the burden is has been increasing rapidly for property taxpayers and homeowners over recent years, and, and that's going to continue to be an ongoing burden um, as we come out of the, the coronavirus situation. Um, it, it's, it's simply a requirement that if school districts are going to raise that rate um, and ask voters for additional property tax revenue, uh, they've got to conduct an efficiency audit first. This is something that they can have. The school districts have to do a regular financial audit every year. This is something they can have that auditor do as part of that process. Um, and and the, the ultimate goal is that that audit compares uh, spending practices with outcomes for students, puts them in one place, as crazy as it may seem, most of the time, those aren't discussed in the same room at the same time, and they're not in the same report. So it gathers all of that essential information in one place um, and provides taxpayers a chance to kind of look at what we're spending, what we're getting, what the plan is moving forward, and assess where we're at. Uh, the funding conversation and the student outcomes conversation happens in a vacuum, and, and it's time to put those two together um, and of course, another essential aspect here is uh, the audit's designed to compare what you're spending and the results that your district is getting um, with other peer districts, districts in similar situations with similar student bodies, uh, similar financial uh, levels, and see if, if you're doing worse, if you're doing better, um, kind of compare for ideas of uh, to see where, where you're different and where you could improve. You know, some might say that now's not the time, Emily, that that there is a you know, we're going through a crisis that what we really need to make sure is that, you know, we have as much of the funding as we can possibly get out to the schools uh, because we don't know where our economy is going to be, you know, in, you know, in the next three or four, three or four months. Others might say that because we're going to have limited resources or because we may be having to make cutbacks across the board. An efficiency audit is probably the most important thing we need to yeah. do. Um, you know, obviously, you may come down on one side or the other. But talk <laughs> talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I would lean toward the second side of that simply because I mean, what we're talking about are property tax bills for Texas families and small business owners um, that are being hit really, really hard right now by what's going on with the coronavirus. So the last thing that we need to do is just be raising rates on people who are already going to be struggling to make ends meet, at least for the temporary, for, for the foreseeable future. So let's, let's keep that stable. Let's be very, very um, intentional about any spending and, and keep that to a minimum. We should be cutting spending if at all possible or looking for ways to use our resources more wisely rather than just say, well, we need more money because, <laughs> because we're all struggling in a really hard time. The answer yeah. is we're all struggling and we need to stay in this together and remember that taxpayers foot the bill for 
every spending increase we ask for. And you, you quickly, you, you bring up an important point that the, you know, the, the state government and others are, you know, falling all over themselves to try and, and remove, you know, regulations and rules and, and, you know, tax payments and things that are all that they say, or at least the argument for removing all of them is that they are hindering uh, our ability to recover, that they are, you know, in the interest of the public welfare, public health and safety. Um, how difficult is it going to be uh, when we do start to recover and we do start getting back on the path to normal to then make the case to keep those regulations that were supposedly <laughs> roadblocks to to prosperity? I, I mean, if we don't need them now, do we need them in any other circumstances? It's a it's a solid question. Um, and I think I think one benefit from this could be should be keeping those regulations uh, down to a minimum as the uh, as society heads toward recovery. I mean, there's no reason if we can take them off now that we need to resaddle uh, industry and entrepreneurs or or just people like nurses um, with additional requirements that weren't necessary at this time. It's going to be a very interesting debate going forward. Uh, but So that concludes our time for this episode. Emily, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. Again, I'm Brian Phillips for the Texas Public Policy Foundation's limited podcast series, The Road to Recovery. For access to the full series, you can find us on iTunes. And for more information on this and other critical issues facing you and your family, our schools, our state, and our nation, please go to texaspolicy.com. Thank you for listening.